This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and today my guest is Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. He is, of course, a familiar voice here on Main Street as he joins us once a month for Philosophical Currents, a philosophical view on some of the biggest news events. Jack, thanks for joining us today. I am happy to be here. So spring or summer, or whatever the, the season is, <laughs> has sprung and it is lovely out and, and, and I couldn't be happier because it's what, only taken 17 months to get here at this point? <laughs> yeah, at this point. We are having you on today, Jack, to talk about uh, what's going on in the Supreme Court. There has been a lot of discussion lately in talking about Roe v. Wade and is it possible to overturn this, but in our discussion before we started recording, it's not so much about Roe v. Wade itself, but the fact that that is a very polarizing topic, and it comes down to this idea of beliefs and morals and reason and emotion and the things that we hold dear and why do we spend so much time trying to argue and change somebody else's mind? So, Jack, I think we need to start right there. What is the mind? <laughs> well, I really wasn't expecting you yeah, to go no. in that direction. I was, you know, I, it's, it's like an old radio DJ trick, like you have to go to the bathroom and you put on a really long song. So I'm just going to ask you that and leave. <laughs> all right. Well, that's – okay. So – um. We want to distinguish between brain and mind. Mm-hmm. Brain is the is the stuff. It's the meat. It's the chemicals. It's the electrical stimuli. It's it's the body. And mind is this undefinable thing, this consciousness that uh, we ascribe to our personality that that develops with experience that that has an identity and. One of the central questions of philosophy, but also one of the central questions of the conversation we're having is to what extent can you change your mind? Can you alter your mind? I mean, think about for a second taking antidepressants, right? Antidepressants work on the brain. They work on the chemicals in the meat, which I keep saying, but I'm not sure is is a particularly attractive <laughs> description. And And so – the doctors said the, the neurologists say that there's something out of whack and we take this pill and then it hopefully is in some sort of harmony. But that doesn't work with the mind. Uh, if you're sad, it takes a lot of different things to stop you from being sad. And sometimes you're supposed to be sad if you're scared, if you're excited. One of the things that is very common to say now is that the uh, a feeling of uh, being scared and being excited are basically the same. And so if you mm. define being scared as being excited, you can sort of change your outlook. But that's so abstract. That's so amorphous. And so once we start putting it in the realm of mind, the ability to change it, the ability to affect it becomes much more ambiguous and, and, and much more harder to get your hands on. So when we're talking about this idea of can you change someone's mind and more accurately, should you, do we really mean to say mind or do we mean to say belief system? It really depends what you're talking about because 
we do want to change someone's mind and that we often want to change someone's perspective. We want to change the way that people look at the world holistically. That's one of the reasons why it's so hard to change people's attitudes is you're not just changing a fact. You're not changing. Mm -hmm. Philosophers like to, to, uh, talk about proposition. A proposition is a statement that could be true or false, right? And so the idea is, you know, the, the book is red, the, the the cat is furry, is different than ouch, right? Because ouch isn't true or false, it's, it's something else. And so when we talk about changing people's beliefs or, or, or changing people's attitudes about facts, we're usually talking about propositions. But when you say, you think this is false, but this is true. Nothing stands alone. Nothing is just an item unconnected to everything else. And so if you want to change someone's mind about whether something is true or false, often you have to change five things, 10 things, 20 things, because one of the ways we think about truth is that it's coherent. It's, it's a whole system. And when someone tells us something that's not true or something that is true, we ask, does it fit into what we already believe? And so it becomes really complicated really quickly. Well, and there are so many studies that have shown uh, confirmation bias. We listen to arguments that support what we already want to believe. Absolutely. And I want to get to that in a second mm -hmm. because the role of reason and perfect reason is really important. But I want to start with something very familiar to all of us, but that isn't to say as controversial as, as abortion, right? Which is, have you ever tried to convince someone that they're not fat? <laughs> Can you ever, mm -hmm. have you ever found someone who, you know, who was convinced? I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, right? you know me, you've known me for a long time. The last few years, as I've told the, the listeners, I've been doing triathlons. I have a coach. I'm very concerned about my physical weight. And the other day I got on the scale and I was 230 pounds and I'm freaking out. I mean, I'm six foot two and but I'm not fat in any way. But I see this number 200. Mm. It's, the, it's the it's the heaviest I've ever been. And what do we call it? We call it lose weight. Right. So I am having this these mental gymnastics in my head to tell myself, no, muscle weighs twice as much as fat and this, that, and the other mm -hmm. thing. And you're tall and all this, but, but 230 pounds. And so then you have, right, the experience of someone putting on an outfit or someone convincing their fat or, or someone with, you know, a more serious um, body dysmorphia who has anorexia or, or bulimia. Just that very, very simple thing is unbelievably complicated to get someone to change their attitude. Now switch that sort of, I'll call it trivial, even though it's not in many instances, uh, that trivial example, and then switch it with when life begins or what rights someone has or what the role of religion should be in political life. And it increases exponentially. And it seems like all rationality just kind of goes out the window. Well, and maybe even that just continues on with what you said. It's just a matter of how you feel, no matter how much you try to say, okay, yeah, it, this isn't fat, this is a muscle. But when it comes down to something that is how you feel, it calls into these questions of like, can a person even be 100% rational and not have an emotional reaction to something? It's a super great and super important question because it goes back to the very beginnings of what we would call the Western tradition um, that 
that is alter not not an alternative worldview, but a supplemental worldview to the Abrahamic traditions, to the religious traditions that that um, permeate, and and it goes back to Plato and and the idea that there are three different parts of the soul. Plato says when he says soul, he means character, but but there are three different parts of us. There's the will, which is our stubbornness and our ability to do something. There's emotion, which is our passions and our desires. And then there's reason, which is logic. And Plato thought that our decisions should be governed by reason. And that is a normative claim. And what I mean by that is that's a should, that's an ought, that's a better. And so Plato argued that decisions made by reason are better than decisions made by emotion. And that has passed on through the generations to this idea that when we make a decision, when we change our mind, it has to be reasonable. It has to be rational. It has to come out of this logic. And we have a word for people who change their mind other ways, and that's brainwashing, right? What's the difference between changing someone's mind and brainwashing someone is using emotion, using pressure, using habit. And so we have this ideal vision of what a human being should be when they're making decisions that is purely rational, purely logic-based, purely evidence-based, but there is a throwback to that, and historically that's the Mr. Spocks in, in Star Trek and the Datas and the robots, that, that there is something human about emotions. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we're struggling with as a culture when we're having debates about things like Roe v. Wade or whether we're fat is how to balance our emotional needs with our reason and with our logic what takes precedence when? Well, in thinking about this idea of only a logical approach is the right approach to making a decision, what about when we tell someone to go with their gut or we talk about the gut feeling? And that honestly does get a lot of praise at times. We, we do allow people to have those gut feelings and to trust them. That's not logical. I, I, I'm super glad you asked that question too, because basically I'm gonna have I'm giving you an entire lecture on the history of ideas in about four <laughs> minutes. Um, I talked about the Platonic tradition uh, uh, being one based on reason. Well, in particular, the Christian tradition is one based on intuition, based on gut. It, it, essential into this Christian history is this idea that if you look deep enough. In yourself, you will find the right answer. If you look uh, hard at yourself and, and the world around you, the divine, right, morality, God will speak through you. Now, the problem with that is, is analogous to the problem with reason, right? The problem with reason was we're human beings, emotion plays an important part. But the problem with the gut and the instinct is that often the things that feel the most uh, right to us are also the things that are the most familiar. So if you asked a, a, a slaveholder in 1820, do the descendants of Africans deserve to be slaves and they look deep in their heart, they're going to say yes, right? And so we that's what reason is supposed to counter. That goes back to that confirmation bias thing you mentioned earlier. And so one of the things that has happened in the last 50 years or so both in terms of philosophy, but also in terms of psychology and, 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 and social sciences, is that 
we're trying to figure out a way to take the positive aspects of both of these traditions, the reason tradition and intuition tradition, and find a well-balanced attitude, a well-balanced perspective, so that when we do change people's minds or when we seek to change our own minds, we can take the appropriate amount of logic and the appropriate amount of emotion and make a human and what we'll call an authentic decision. And what I mean by an authentic Mm -hmm. decision is a decision that really represents ourself. We're not doing it because we're pressured. We're not doing it because it's strategic. We're not doing it because everyone will, will just, you know, shut up and we can move on with our lives. We're doing it because we have that full conviction and we can justify it while feeling good about ourselves. We're visiting today with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He joins us once a month for Philosophical Currents. And today we are looking at this idea of changing someone's mind. And I guess we should get to that uh, uh, central question we talked about in the very beginning, which is, should you try to change someone's mind? Is that ethical? This is a really hard question because... My instinct is to say you should change people's minds when it's good to change their minds, right? If, if, if someone's about to murder someone, it's good to change their mind and tell them to stop, right? If someone is going to eat healthy, maybe it's not a good idea to change their mind to have an extra pound of, of, of French fries, right? But, but that feels, I don't know, glib or too easy. And so then we get a whole other sort of path that tradition and that is and and that's what's called autonomy and this comes out of the 18th century this comes out of the discussion that was the, the american founding was based on which is the idea that when people make decisions for themselves they should rely on themselves first that people are have to be enlightened that they pe- they have to be free and what it means to be enlightened and free is to be able to make a decision for yourself so the question becomes when you try to change someone's mind are you taking away their freedom when you try to change someone's mind are you making them less autonomous and we've struggled with this but the answer that we seem to have come up with is It's okay to try to change someone's mind, but some methods are acceptable and some methods are not. And that then goes back to the discussion about reason, because what we've decided is that in a perfect world, the way to preserve someone's freedom, the way to preserve someone's autonomy is to use reason to change their mind instead of emotion. But then we get back to the same circle. So it's a a short version of that whole long thing is... Every path we take to changing someone's mind leads to the same problem. And that same problem is what standard are we going to use to decide when a decision is good and when it's okay to have someone pressure you or or encourage you to change your mind. And that really depends on a whole set of of beliefs, including religious beliefs and scientific beliefs and political beliefs and and, and social beliefs. And again, super complicated. What about in this instance, the popular belief, um, the majority of Americans do support some access to abortion. But if this is overturned on the point of view of a minority... What's difficult about that is that two things are going on at the same time. The first is a political argument, and the political argument is pretty straightforward, which is as you described it, which is 
our representatives are supposed to represent the majority. And since some, something in the 80s, some early, low 80% of people believe that abortion of some sense should be uh, accessible, then we should let that happen because the, the, the 19%, the 17%, whatever ever it works out to, shouldn't govern the society. So that's the political argument. But the other argument that's, that's more philosophically difficult is the implication that since the vast majority of people are in favor of abortion, you should be in favor of abortion too, right? If what we're saying when we use that example is politically we should vote with the majority, that's fine. But if what we're saying is the majority thinks X is true, thinks abortion should be permitted, therefore you should, mm. that leads to at least a, a fallacy of appeal to the, the majority or appeal to popularity, which is lots of other people like this. Therefore, you're wrong if you don't like it too, right? The the, the old advertising slogan from actually even before my time, you know, uh, five million Frenchmen can't be wrong, right? Or, uh, you know, so so. This goes back to the heart of, of, of Plato's problem, which is most people collectively get the wrong answer. And if you simply say most people believe this, therefore you should believe this, it doesn't allow for social change. It doesn't allow for new discoveries. It doesn't allow for different perspectives. And so when we use those statistics, if we are saying most people believe this, therefore you should believe this, we are abandoning reason completely and appealing. E well, that's not fair. Let me take that back. It's not that we're abandoning reason completely. It's that what we're saying is the majority is more reliable than you, right? There's an old Yiddish expression that I love, which is if three people tell you you're drunk, go home. <laughs> and, and, and there's something really powerful about that, right? If everyone says to you, look, dude, you are not in your right mind. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Uh, go home. I'm going to go home. Is three people telling you you're drunk the equivalent of 82% of people telling you abortion is okay? I don't know. Maybe. So on the one hand, there's this philosophical sense of the majority is reliable and trust them. On the other hand is the sense that no, you don't want to feel comfortable in the group. You don't want to feel like an outlier. You don't want to feel ostracized. And therefore, you should change your mind. And it's unclear whether that is a good reason to change your mind. It may be. But only if the thing that is that you're changing your mind to is itself justified. Well, at the risk of sounding overly uh, glib here keeping up with this being drunk thing, there is a famous study that most people who are told that they are, you know, drinking are going to get drunk even if they are actually being served non-alcoholic beer. So there's this idea, kind of goes back to that confirmation bias, uh, similar to, you know, you're going to believe what you already want to believe. And if you think you can get drunk on non-alcoholic beer, therefore you're getting drunk on non-alcoholic beer. What does that say about that majority opinion? Because it shows our minds are pretty dang malleable. And that's the key word, right? Minds here, going back to your very first question. Alcohol works on the brain, right? Whatever the, the, the neurology is and the chemistry is, I don't know. But, but 
alcohol does things to the brain that that changes our reaction times, that changes our uh, our, our filters. But what you're suggesting, what that study suggests is, well, you can have the same effect by persuading people using their mind rather than their brain. And if that's the case, well, one could ask, how do we harness that fake drunk because it's a lot cheaper <laughs> than the, the actual drunk? And I wonder, I would be curious about the follow-up study, if there was one, as to how quickly those people sober up, right? Because mm -hmm. the problem with the brain drunk is that you want to get and drive your car and you're super drunk and you can't. But if you're mind drunk and you get the car and someone says, you can't drive, you're drunk, you can go, I decide I'm not drunk anymore. And then you're sober up, right? And then someone can come along and say, okay, but then mind drunk isn't really drunk. But is really drunk the perception of being drunk, seeing the world as if you're drunk, or is really drunk the chemical imbalance, the, the chemical, the neurology of being drunk? And so what's super interesting about that study is that it throws for a loop the, the, the effectiveness of brain-mind and makes us wonder what's happening with alcohol and how much of it is objective and how much of it is subjective. So given all of this, especially in light of people getting uh, pretty heightened emotions when it comes to talking about Roe v. Wade, in all that we have learned about changing people's minds, how should we interact with someone who just doesn't see the world the same way that we do? I think the key, and, and these days this feels a little trite, but, but, but I really mean it. I think the key is to listen first, talk second. And what I mean by that is you can always learn from people, including just learning their perspective to disagree with it. And the idea of a democracy, which is, you know, if we weren't in a democracy, none of this would matter. But because we're in a democracy, the question is, how do we create these discussions that don't undermine social trust and social unity and don't make neighbors into enemies. And so one of the standard answers is toleration, right? You have to be willing to live next to someone who has different um, opinions than you. We really need to work on that these days, certainly. But another answer is listen first, talk second, and, 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 and recognize that just because you're hearing someone talk and just because you're letting someone talk doesn't mean you're giving them power doesn't mean you're giving up your freedom. Once you start to listen, you start to be able to see what you agree with and what you disagree with. One of my favorite pieces of information is that the, the single most effective way of changing people's mind in support of gay marriage is showing them that there are gay people in their lives, that as soon as people understand their brother or their cousin or their friend or whomever is gay, their mind changes. Why? Because when there's someone who you care about, who has been in this category of badness, you are moved to tend to them as human beings. You're moved to empathy, which is a kind of emotion and has rational elements. You're moved to, to, to the sense of, of, of openness to them. And so we have to treat the people of the opposing position, the same way that these sort of newly discovered gay relatives are treated, which is, oh, wait, 
let me put your humanity first. Let me create some empathy. Let me construct a situation of civility and let me listen. And part of the issue is that a lot of these fights aren't really about the opinion at all. They're not really about changing people's minds. They're about being heard. They're about being seen, right? And if you can listen to someone talk about an opposing position for five minutes and say, look, I thought that was really interesting and I understand why you feel that way. We feel, I feel different. Let me tell you why, but let's have a drink of non-alcoholic beer and get drunk together. <laughs> um, then they feel validated and they feel important and they feel relevant because a lot of this discussion is really just about, I feel alone. I feel isolated. I feel unrecognized. And so I'm going to scream and I'm going to yell and I'm going to get louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and louder until I'm seen. And we know that doesn't work. And then this is where the majority stuff comes in, where the validity of the majority comes stuff in uh, of stuff comes in when the vast majority of women in a community say taking away our right to abortion is not seeing us. Well, now this isn't a fact-based argument. This is a political argument and a social argument, and that's worth attending to. When this huge amount of people says, you're not seeing us, well, maybe we need to stop and see them better. Philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota and the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. He joins us once a month on Main Street for Philosophical Currents. Thank you, Jack. Oh, thank you.